there. For West Flop Pirates, welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports, with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above, as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Scoe's Fire McCall Scousebo. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we're just not going to beat, beat around the bush here, are we, are we Scous? No, no, not not this time. Not today. He's uh, sorry. He earned it. This that's one of the worst offensive coached games I've ever seen. And uh, yeah, we will be laying into the man. And and especially when you consider that our defense in this twenty-four to fifteen loss at Wisconsin, our defense was playing out of its mind. Like the they okay, they gave up one touchdown. The defense, and you know, say what you will, like the. Uh, that fourth down touchdown score by Jonathan Taylor, the fullback was clearly not set. Moving forward to the line, you know, penalty should have been called. Um, so th- I, I have some beef there. But after that, Jonathan Taylor did not destroy us like the way he'd been destroying everyone all season. He had he ended up with a, with a good stat line, sure. But, you know, we'd been able to control Jonathan Taylor his entire career yeah okay 26 for 119 4.6 yards but that that's not that's way worse than he had been getting in all of his other games he this is this is i think based on on my mat this is the sixth game in his career since 2017 in which he has averaged under five yards per carry and three of those six games are against northwestern it's so maddening to me. And again, I'm not saying this to try to like toot our own horn or make it seem like we're always right. We could easily point to Ohio State as a team that we were not nearly as glass full on, you know, as we should have been um, in our previews. But it's so annoying when you look at the team we played last week, the team we play next week, most of the teams in the conference and can be like, we have these teams pegged, especially as it comes to how they go against Northwestern. And you can look at a team like the Badgers, who, you know, we talked about coming in. I mean, yeah, we were a little split. Um, but, like, Jonathan Taylor getting 119 yards is a bad outcome for Wisconsin. Because they need him to be running loose. Because everything they do is predicated off that. And, again... This is why last week I was a little bit more glass half empty on Jack Cohn just because, you know, I threw out the Tolzien reference and Scuzz is right. Cohn's been dealing lately in a way up until our game that Tolzien didn't. But the it all falls apart when they can't establish the run. And Sam mentioned that illegal shift by the fullback on that fourth and two play. And yeah, you could say it's picking nits, except no, because they scored on that play. And if they have a fourth and seven based on everything else in the game, their defense, uh, they don't even get in the end zone on that play. And that was their one offensive touchdown of the game. And where I'm going with all this is it, it makes me so mad that we can have everything pegged so well and peg the way our defense is going to come into a play like this. But when we try to peg the performance of our offense, it all gets short-circuited because of awful coaching. And 
it's just so annoying because you can look at the way our players perform in certain situations and look at the way their players perform and tendencies and be like, okay, based on this, I can see where we are going to be able to get the upper hand. And then just to have to work to account for something like atrocious, horrible play calling. Um, and so it's like, I'm sorry. Like, I feel like we absolutely pegged what Wisconsin is on both sides of the ball. Um, and I feel like we out, you know, based on pure talent on both of these teams, we had more than enough to win. But one of these teams had an offensive scheme that was just going to doom it to failure. And that's what happened. Shall we just, you know, get right into it? I mean, so we come into the game hearing that Bennett Skronik's out. And, you know, we come to learn in uh, Fitz's press conference today, he had surgery for something. He's going to be out for several days. So um, another offensive weapon uh, gone for Hunter Johnson. Um, you know, Isaiah Bowser's his, his, the our best receiver. Yeah. To date, for sure. Oh, a- absolutely. Uh, Bowser's still not 100% from, from his injury. Um, obviously, you know, Hunter went out uh, with an injury in, in this game as well. But like, you know, Aiden Smith came in and in the fourth quarter when it was, we got to get, we got to get stuff done and we got to get away from the game plan and the offense started moving and we started scoring and, you know, it, I, I th- that's what's the most frustrating. It's like, you know, in the fourth quarter when we got into crunch time and actually had to start moving, like when we threw out the game plan and started moving the ball, that's the most frustrating thing of all. Well, I, I tweeted at one point in the fourth quarter, like, Oh, look slants. Cause we threw a slant for the first time um, in the game. And I just, I, you know, there were a lot of people on Twitter wondering like, why weren't our receivers getting separation? And, and there were like, much like John, when you watch the film of the Michigan state game and you could see receivers running free, there were plays where guys were free and, there were a couple of situations where, like, the rollout, um, you know, took a player off the map or uh, Hunter just didn't see them. And, it, like, it, I, I go back to Clayton Thorson's freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and senior year. And any time the offense was in trouble, we just started running mesh routes and basically pick plays to, to try and get receivers open in space and just get something going. And... We're, we seem to be unwilling or unable to do that for Hunter. It's all it's all the read option game. It is uh, until they establish the read option game, they're they're terrified of throwing downfield, um, and that just allows the defense for the second game in a row to just all right, sweet. We just have to defend seven yards from the line of scrimmage and we're good to go. Um, so a lot of people saying like. Oh, you know, we like we miss TJ Green. That's a problem. And the reality is, is like, can TJ read a defense better than Hunter at this point? Probably. Can he can he change protections at the line better than Hunter? Probably. But can he attack a defense downfield that forces them to stretch out and not just defend the first seven yards past the line of scrimmage? No, who, he can't. Who, who knows? Who yeah, knows well, well, if yeah, any that, Northwestern that quarterback can attack a defense downfield? Um, well, it's I mean, we we certainly saw Hunter do it uh, a couple weeks ago. We saw him do it a bit during Stanford as well. And, I like, the offense is – this is very reminiscent of um, 20, uh, 
2014, 2013 to me, where we just let we just put Trevor Simeon out there. It's 2013 is the year I'm thinking of when everything went to shit. Um, we just put Trevor Simeon out there and just let him let him flounder. I mean, the guy was not mobile enough to get away from pressure, and teams were just teeing off on him. And he'd you know we'd run the ball and have an incompletion, and then he gets sacked like every third down. Um, and there was. There was no adjustment. There was no change in strategy. There was nothing being done to help him. And it feels like, again, till the till late in the game, when all of a sudden we feel like we need to 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 try and ramp things up, open up the playbook, quote unquote. I think I think at one point I heard heard the announcers say that like, oh, Mick McCall's opening up the playbook and mm. moving the ball. I'm like, no, like, the, you could have done it like took the an hour ago. Away. Yeah, someone took the playbook away from him. That's what oh. happened. Um, but but the, like they but the QBs are just out there floundering and then you know they like both of them missed a um, uh, an edge rusher that protections didn't get called Hunter gets knocked out of the game on it and um and Smith gets you know fumble sacked for a touchdown on it or maybe that was Hunter that that happened no it was, to. It, was Smith. Way, it's, it was Smith like it's 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 brutal right now it's I, really brutal right now. I, so, again, I just want to say, okay, are the receivers blameless? No. Is the offensive line blameless? No. Have we... Are, are the are the quarterbacks blameless? No. no. But have we said in the past, it, like, if you, those of you who've been listening to this podcast, do you ever feel like we pull punches when we think a position group isn't doing a good job? Okay? Does the offensive line have major problems in pass pro, especially on the edge? They have problems, but go back to the tape. This is just one more. I Again, I'm apoplectic at how horrible the game plan was here in so many ways. Here's one. You want to know why those guys were getting off the edge so well? Because they had our snap count clocked like they called it themselves. There's one play in the game. <laughs> I, oh man! This, I need to, Sorry, I need to drink while you're talking about this. This play, okay. We had been calling such a repetitive snap count that when we finally changed it up, Drake false started, and it didn't even matter because two Wisconsin guys jumped off at the same time. That's how dialed in they had been to what we've been doing up to this point. You couple that with the fact that I texted you guys at some point in the third quarter being like, when is the last time you didn't correctly call run or pass on a Northwestern down, particularly first down? Zach Peerless sent out a tweet at some point during the game, sometime in that third quarter when we had all descended deep into our own shells, um, showing the utter futility on first down in this game, a level that I had not seen since the 2015 Iowa game I tried to quickly brush by last pod. Um, And it doesn't get any worse than that. There was a point shortly after that tweet where... On our first downs, first down plays Northwestern ran. Wisconsin had more points than we had yards. And keep in mind, this seems like stating the obvious, but that's the down when you get to choose anything you want to do. (laughs) 
Cir- yeah. Circumstances dictate nothing. And there was the idea that there were there were here are four plays that I could throw out that were run on first down that weren't death runs into the line Wisconsin was waiting for. There was that screen pass we tried to run twice that nearly got it was either Drake or Bowser killed. And I remember the second time, Sam, you were like, Are we just gonna keep running that until like <laughs> I was the sec because the result was exactly the same and then two short, basically one yard flat routes to a superback. And all of that was stuff where Wisconsin was just like on first down, they're going to throw within a yard of the LOS or they're going to feed it into the line. And on every play subsequent to that, it's going to be on one or on two or whatever the count was that Wisconsin clocked almost immediately. And you're just like, that's that's it. I mean, who knows? We didn't attempt a downfield throw, an over-the-top throw, until late in the game. And if you look at our scoring drive, here's another way to think about it. Aiden Smith, a guy who was ice cold, had barely played at all in his career. He comes out. He can't hit the broadside of a barn at the start because, like, he's ice cold and nervous out of his mind on the road in Camp Randall. Which is which is a crazy in. place to play. And, like, that, that crowd was oh, insane. It was great. I absolutely. Mean, great atmosphere. Right. Right. Within a drive or two, he's moving the ball in a way we haven't moved at all game because we abandoned the game plan and he's getting five wide and scuzz already mentioned the slants and it's like look at just look at the look at the first down plays late in the game and you suddenly see oh five yards on first down six yards on first down instead of negative one zero a fumble return for a touchdown um it's i just can't it's it's like literally when the offensive coaches were taken out of the game that's when we move the ball. It's well, just, it's it's as bad as it gets. They so clearly don't trust Hunter right now. Like if and you go back to what we saw in that in that Stanford game, or or even in the UNLV game. And and granted, like UNLV's defense, totally different animal. But on the road against Stanford, like we were throwing the ball around. Like he was he was giving it a shot, and he was he was high on a lot of balls. Um, and he was he maybe has thro- he throws them too hard sometimes, but like like the the everything everything short to the edge, close to the line of scrimmage, like they it, it seems like they went into this game. The game plan was all right, offense, do no harm and let the defense keep it close, and you know shrug emoji. Maybe maybe we'll get lucky and. That approach actually worked for us, what, like four years, four or five years ago in <laughs> Madison? Um, but it's just, man, it's a struggle right now. And, I, like, I think we should dive in. I know, John, you did a bunch of research on the, the offensive coordinator landscape in college football. Uh, but, but, um, before we get there, I, I do want to ask you guys, and maybe this kind of ties into it, but, um, you know, a lot, a lot of talk post game on the uh, going for two-point conversions there at the end there. And, like, how ridiculous it seemed but then there's a bunch of like advanced statistical articles are out there saying that that's actually the better way to go is to go for two look look, the math is sound but the math is based upon the idea that in the nfl and this is nfl math that i saw cited the math is based on the idea that in the nfl 50 percent of two-point conversions get converted 
there is no planet there's no planet on this earth right now that believes that Northwestern has a 50% chance of converting anything let's, at any given time. Yeah, let's let's call up Nate Silver and ask him what the analytics are on the worst short yardage coach in the country being asked <laughs> to go for two when we're down by 14 late in the game. Let's see what the analytics spit out on that one. Oh, Lord have mercy. I Again, it's like, what, like would I have done it? No. Is that one of those squirrely analytics things? Yes, it is. And and regardless of what anyone says, I don't know. Like, I just, that's one of those ones where, you know, I, it's, it's one of those things where, like, you, you sort of try to start talking, starting, try to start talking yourself into it after it happens, where in reality, if the extra point was kicked, not one person in the country would have been like, you know, that. well, you know, they should have gotten for two there. Like, none of Actually. us. Actually. Yeah. None of us would have been saying that. Um, I might start doing that. Yeah. Um, and, but again, but again, it's like, here's why, like, analytics, not analytics, who cares? Here's why we shouldn't have gone for two there. Because every single one of you listening to this podcast knew we weren't going to get it when we went out and ran for two. That's why we shouldn't have done it. Pretty much. <sighs> oh, God. Yeah, I don't know. Let's. I I kind of feel like yeah, I've been held back long enough. Yeah, John. <laughs> like you know, let's let, let's dive right in. I mean, you you I, did some research on, uh, not even research, but just looking. I mean, you asked. I, I believe you asked me during the game last night. Like, how old is Mick McCall? And, so this, and I. So here's the thing, right? I don't want to like. We want to make sure to avoid ageism here, okay? And <laughs> I was it's, about to say, like... And it's tricky. Mick McCall's, like, here's one of the short ways into it. Mick McCall's way older than most offensive coordinators in the country, especially the Power Five, okay? I don't want to go into ageism, but there are a couple things that we're, that I am going to illustrate. Because it's not that he's old, it's that his particular situation is is just a reflection of... A, a crazy situation that you don't see playing out any other way, and there are good reasons for that. So, first of all, within the Big Ten, the average age of an offensive coordinator other than Mick McCall is 45.1 years old, okay? There's only one other offensive coordinator in the Big Ten uh, who is within a decade in age of Mick McCall. That would be Kevin Wilson. And Kevin Wilson is not your typical offensive coordinator. And we're going to get into why in a second. There are four coaches, offensive coordinators in the Big Ten, who are at least 20 years younger than Mick McCall. Um, and again, before a lot of you are like, okay, but like you're going down the ageism road. Well, here's where I'm really going. So what I did is I looked at the Big Ten and I looked at the SEC. And I looked at all of the coaches and I looked at all of the ages of the coaches. And then I tried to find, you know, kind of a, a pattern here. And here's what basically emerges. If you look at those, that's a total of 28 teams, right? Of those 28 teams, Florida is kind of squirrely on offense right now. They kind of do it by committee. It's not exactly clear who's calling the plays, but it's pretty clear with the other 27 teams. And of those 27 teams... You could break it down into some very easy to identify subcategories. Let's say there are four categories in which every offensive coordinator of those 27 teams I referred to 
Every offensive play caller fits into one of these four categories. The largest category by far is what we'll call offensive ingenue, right? This is the largest group. 15 coaches out of the 27 fit into this group. Their average age is 40. They get as young as like 28, right? It's like goes with the general overall thinking, the most common thinking that you see with offensive coordinators is like, okay, who's the hot young mind with the new ideas? That's the guy that we want, right? And those, so basically you've got five of these guys that are these young guys. They're thought of as like the most current minds and they're getting their shot, right? Of those 15 guys, right? Like probably the majority of them ultimately are not going to pan out. Their new ideas may carry them for a little while, but ultimately like their overall ability to call plays and carry an offense won't. And they'll kind of descend back to where they came from, right? Position coaches most of the time, right? They'll go back. They'll be position coaches, probably at the power five level, et cetera, right? Now, the ones who do a great job, right? These young ingenues quickly become hot commodities. They will be promoted, up to the head coaching level, right? And then they'll and those so and then there'll be a third group who is like good but not great. Um, but you know, but they're not not so much that they're immediately can, but not the great enough that they get promoted to head coach. Now, so that's the largest group. The second group, you've got the names that would be offensive coordinators in these two conferences that are names you know. And why are they names you know? Because these guys at one point were white hot group one guys and they became head coaches and had varying levels of success, right? You've got Rich Rodriguez right now at Ole Miss, right? You've got Kevin Wilson at Ohio State, right? These were once upon the time thought of as like the very best offensive minds. And frankly, they still have good reputations when it comes to offense. They're guys who got the head coaching job, you know, and for various reasons, either lack of success or, you know, Kevin Wilson's, you know, character issues, et cetera. They end up back where they are. You've got Derek Dooley in this group. You've got Steve Sarkeesian in this group, right? Um, the average age of this group of guys is 52. So it shades a little bit older. Then you've got group three. There are seven coaches in this group and we'll call this group extremely itinerant veteran. These, this group is an average age of 54 and it includes the only coaches who are remotely close to Mick McCall's age in, and they're both in the SEC. That would be Jim Chaney at Tennessee and it would be Steve Ensminger at LSU. Ensminger is 61 and Chaney is 62. Okay. And when I say the extremely itinerant journeyman, what I mean is these guys are thought of as good enough to be offensive coordinators, but they must prove that they are good enough to keep up with the latest trends, etc. Um, Cheney would be the classic example. Cheney at one time was Joe Tiller's right-hand man at Purdue. Um, and this goes back to the Drew Brees era and then into the area, the Kyle Orton era, etc. Um, and then at the end of that era, Purdue started to tail off and that magic that Tiller had that Cheney had started to peter out and they weren't adjusting. They weren't getting with the times uh, and Purdue's success started to tank and Cheney lost his job and moved on. And then he was a position coach in the NFL for a couple of years, learned a couple of new things 
and then went to the SEC with Tennessee and had so-so levels of success under the Derek Dooley administration. And when Dooley was let go, Cheney was let go. And since then, he's been at Arkansas, Pitt, then had some success at Georgia, and now he's at Tennessee. I just named a ton of teams. A ton of guess how good Tennessee feels about their offense right now. Tennessee fans, exactly. And this is a classic situation. This guy overall is thought of as a good offensive mind, not good enough to get promoted to head coach level. Although he was an, an interim head coach for one game at Tennessee, but thought to like a guy who knows the plays. He was an innovator at one point in his career twenty years ago, um, and he's a guy who's thought of as good enough. Up until he's not succeeding. And then someone asks him to move on. And then he's got to go back to the drawing board and find ways to become relevant again. And then he reemerges. Ensminger, who is 61, this guy was the offensive coordinator at Texas A&M in the mid-90s. And then at Clemson right after that. And then his ability to stay with the times petered out. Between then and now, where he is having success at this moment in time in LSU, this guy coached, among other places, at three different high schools. Um, And also was like a position coach of two different positions at Auburn and like has bounced around different places. I mean, he's been all over the place. That is the the kind of typical thing of Category 3. So we've got Category 1. The young offensive ingenue, that's 15 coaches across the two conferences. You've got, call it Peter Principal, call it whatever. You've got four ex-head coaches, span, you know, manning four of the other jobs. And you've got the average age of 54, seven of the extremely itinerant veterans. Category four is Mick McCall. That's the category. There is no other comparison. A guy who has had... Very middling success. Boom and bust would be as charitable as you could say it. And has remained in the same job for an extremely long amount of time. And I get that we do things a special way. I get that we like to do things a different way. The question I would pose to you is, why could Mick McCall not do that as our quarterback coach? He's thought of as a good developer of quarterback talent. A good guy week to week. Um, working with those guys, um, working on their skill sets, etc. Um, look like a guy like Bob Hefner, who has been our super back coach forever and is excellent at that job and provides excellent continuity within the program, which helps with recruiting and helps with development of talent. Why could Mick McCall not have that role? Well, and, well, and here, here's a perfect corollary to that. Jerry Brown was once the defensive coordinator of Northwestern and took a lot of flack because he wasn't great at it. Went back to being, I mean, he ended up being like assistant head coach, but um, went back, focused on the, on the defensive backs and became, I mean, how many Northwestern defensive backs did he put into the NFL over the last, what, six, eight years of his career? Like there's, there's, there's a clear pathway here. Right. And again, it's like, Again, a simpler way to look at it, of the of the 28 total teams, right, of, across the SEC and the Big Ten, 19 of those teams have as their offensive coordinator either a guy who was formerly a head coach, and in most of those cases, formerly a head coach of some stature, and 15 guys who are in that job because they are the young minds with the latest ideas 
and they're going to try every one of those things and new concepts as they try to move themselves up the coaching ladder. That's 19 of the 28. And then you've got a group of guys who are constantly forced to innovate and improve so that they can make it to their next job. And then you have Mick McCall. And, and that's the thing that's I, so frustrating. It's like, you know, you've never seen nor- the Northwestern offense change in the past 10 years. We're running the exact same offense as we were running 10 years ago, but college football has evolved. Like, the the way college football is played has changed, and you need to be able to adapt and come up with new ideas and new concepts. That- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one step further, Sammy. I, I don't think... I mean, you can make some arguments maybe about basketball, but I think it roughly looks the same. The the football offensive strategy has changed more than I think anything else in sports in the last ten years. I mean, in the NFL, in the NFL, we you people routinely talk about the fact that running backs don't really have value anymore. That's ludicrous how much college, how much football strategy has changed. And it just underscores all the points you made, John, about guys that are successful at the the tenure level that McCall has. Those guys have garnered that success by moving around and being exposed to different approaches and philosophies. I mean, this is this is diversity 101. Right, exactly. And it's like, again, it's like, where's the pressure to innovate? Where's the pressure to improve? And you've got someone, and again, it's like, Fitz is our program builder. He is our rock, okay? We we love the guy. We have our problems with the guy. We don't like, you know, a lot of times when things go really bad, and then he builds this wall at the press conferences, and... And, but I mean, we, we love the guy. He has built a mighty program that he should be very proud of and deservedly has incredible job security. But with that said, there's that thing where he can get up in a press conference and be like, that's coaching and it starts with me and just eat it. And it's like, no, no one thinks it starts with you, Fitz. If it's on the defensive side of the ball, it's Hankwitz with a healthy side of you. If it's the offensive side of the ball, it's Mick McCall. And it's just like where where the, is the where's the young mind? Where's the innovation? I will quibble with one aspect of that, and that is that from the day he took the head coaching position, maybe not from the day, but from early on in Fitz's tenure, and I remember talking about this at our tailgates and in the stands as we were going through the, especially the two thousand eight season. Fitz wanted to build this program in the mold of the teams that he played on under Gary Barnett. Hard-nosed, rushing attack, defensive-minded, ball-control teams. Now, I think it is, in, in, in the new modern world of, NF, of, of college offenses, of football strategy, etc., I think it is still possible to have a team that does that. Maybe not to compete for a national championship. Well, let me phrase: you can't compete for a national championship in that in that mold. But you can still be a very successful college football team. But when you couple it with the vanilla, bland, repetitive, predictable play calling, 
like you don't have a prayer and so, but so like one, one of the one of the questions that NU fans have been asking for seven or eight years now is how is McCall still the offensive coordinator when you look at those two five and seven years in 2013 and 2014 like expectations in this program have changed dramatically from 20 years ago they've changed dramatically from 10 years ago when Fitz took over and finally finally broke the bowl streak now you know we've we, we're coming off of of an appearance in the Big Ten championship game and and it feels like history repeating itself where the the year after you know a relative breakthrough just the wheels come off and 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 it looks like we are headed for the worst season, you know, that any of us have seen for a long, long time. And I, I, the one thing I will lay on Fitz, like in addition to his, his excessive loyalty, I think part of the reason he's excessively loyal to McCall is it, is it, it fits the identity and the mentality of his team. Like he doesn't want to bring in an air raid guy. And let's be clear. I think that's personally, personally, I think that's fine. We don't need to be an air raid team. We don't need to be Texas tech, but the, the innovation point, I think, is is where you're at, John, and that's and and Sam, you mentioned it too. That like that to me is what matters. Like we need somebody just trying to think differently and bring and and trying to outthink the other teams. And and right now, like it's the opposite. And and you know, there, there's there's something also to be said about a change in voice. I mean, you look at a guy who has done something that no one has done in over a hundred years. And that's Joe Madden winning the world series with the Chicago Cubs. And he's leaving. He's not going to be, he wasn't fired, but he's not getting renewed for uh, his contract moving forward. Sometimes like that, that's unthinkable. A guy who's done that and five years as manager. And now he, now he's moving on to something else. And you know, there, there's something to be said for, a change in the room, a change in voice, something different. And, you know, th- that, that shouldn't be frowned upon. That should be something that's embraced. Right. And, well, let's say Joe Madden had not won a World Series and had been there for 15 years instead of five years. <laughs> like, like the, the bar, I think, you know, the, we, like, just discuss this point that he just made earlier. Like, the line has been the line was let out plenty for Mick McCall five plus years ago. Um and again it's like I I feel bad because you guys who've listened to this pod for a long time, you know, we're not like the rant and rave kind of pod. Like this is not, you know, ESPN one thousand. Like we don't we tend to at try least, to f- at least not about our team, <laughs> right? Like we tend to focus more on analytics and and you know if not analytics trends and really trying to balance things. It's just it's been long enough. And I think the fourth quarter of this game, when we shifted into five wides and when Aiden against all you know all better reason based on the way this game had gone, unless you were watching you know the chance he was actually being given to operate in the in this fourth quarter. You can watch the Wisconsin defensive players looking back and forth. Like for the first time in the game, the linebackers are back being like, oh, okay, wait, wait, do you have him? Do I have him? Wait, what, what's, the, what's the situation here? Where are we going here? You can watch the moment at which those guys are mentally challenged for the first time in the game. Run, pass, I don't care. I just don't want the defense to know what we're running before we run it. We've got a good run-blocking offensive line, okay? 
it's good. Kurt Anderson's coached those guys up. Don't lose sight of that, guys, especially, you know, we're going to pivot in a second, you know, when we get to Nebraska in this pod. Don't lose sight of the fact that we've played some excellent run defenses and that there is a group of hog mollies that are pile movers that if you just give them a chance to work outside of an eight-man box and just give them a chance to run run plays against a defense that isn't 100% expecting run, they will succeed. But you just just the idea that come out in a, in a little bit of five wide, like if the offense that we'd run in the fourth quarter had been running like a little bit in the sec in the first quarter or the second quarter, and then you go to you know to run or something like that, just unbalance the defense in any way, and then run whatever plays you're strongest with. But man. It's just, it's not the talent. It's, it's, I mean, and Scuzz's point's well taken about, right. We're trying to get a certain character of a team and we all celebrated the fact that Kurt Anderson was brought in and is going to help contribute to the offensive line's ability and the run game's ability to be that team. But man, you've got to get some help. Shall we? Should we talk about some, some brief good stuff? Yes. So... I I had two like big like big picture silver linings from this and I think and then I think we should give out some some helmet stickers to some individual performances but as as mind numbing as this game was to watch as frustrating as the last two weeks have been this was the best defensive performance we've seen to date Absolutely. this year oh yeah one hundred percent this was this is the D we've been waiting for yep and the D we expected and they're still there they still got it in them um. That that gives you some hope for the rest of the for the rest of the season. The other thing I I will give credit and John, your criticism of this was 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 warranted. Um, but the tone was a dramatic departure from a week ago, and that was Fitz after the game, not blaming the execution and his players like he did last week, and saying basically we as coaches need to do better. Um, and 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 we've heard that before from him. But it didn't. It didn't feel like a platitude. It 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 felt like, frankly, it felt like an honest assessment rather than just um, bravado with the media, as Fitz is is often want to do. And w- without that, there would have been no hope for change or improvement later this season. So, with those two things, like that's a jumping off point to hopefully at least a little bit of improvement in the next few weeks. Absolutely. And the the defense was fantastic. Here's something that'll get you guys running for your box scores. You know, we outgained Wisconsin in this game. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, our offense outscored Wisconsin's offense. And why? Because our defense absolutely shut them down. It was a dominant performance. And it was the kind of performance that had our, you know, our defense had its hiccups earlier in the year. And last week on the pod, we were kind of like, look, we're not going to dwell on this because what can we say? Our defense should be awesome. Uh, we've watched these, this group of guys play for multiple seasons, and they, they just got it together. And they're like, yeah, well, okay, we clicked. We're good. I, and- I want to I compare and contrast something. Uh, this is good. This is kind of weird. This is going to feel like a transitive property type thing. But I want to compare and contrast some of what I saw from the Michigan-Wisconsin game two weeks ago. Uh, with with what Northwestern did, and I think Michigan under Harbaugh has had a tendency, 
in really big games to um, to go way over aggressive on defense and just way over pursue. And some of the big plays that you saw Wisconsin rip off against what we know is an extremely talented group of defenders at Michigan were just that. A guy went way too hard trying to make a big play and whoops, let Jonathan Taylor get outside the tackle box and he's gone for an 80-yard touchdown. Northwestern played extremely disciplined defensive football and swarmed to the tackler. They tackled well. Greg Newsom was phenomenal holding Quintus Cephas to three catches for 30 yards. This dude has been a terror for other teams to cover. Wisconsin's leading receiver on Saturday was their fullback. Their fullback, Garrett Groshek, who, by the way, also only rushed, uh, only only gained six yards on two carries. It wasn't just Jonathan Taylor that we shut down. He got 119 on 26. Their team only got 130 yards on 36 carries. This defense played out of their minds. Yep. And... Now, and Fitz made the point, I mean, it was like Gaztown wouldn't cop to it after the game. And of course, why would the guys? They're they're classy individuals. But like Fitz was quickly say, yeah, our, our defense is mad. And our defense should be mad at the offense for not getting them the support. And I believe that some of those guys, like this defense got its swagger. And it's about to go on the road to an offense that real talk not as good as it was expected to be this season. And again, it is of that churn and burn model, that speed model, the same model that we saw um, against UNLV. But it's an offense that does not have confidence right now that is prone to turning the ball over. And our defense, they got they got where they needed to get to. This defense has its swagger right now. Before we transition to the this Nebraska game, Let's go ahead and give out some pirate booty uh, yeah, for yeah. this for this one. Willock, I already mentioned Newsom, Absolutely. but Willock deserves it. Leading yep. tackler, really atoned for. I think he was he was trying to make up for many of the missed tackles he had in weeks one, one, two, and three, or one, three, and four. However, that works. Um, those those would be my two big guys. I'd like to quietly point out uh, with a little pirate booty that Charlie Kubanders made five straight field goals. And this was something we were all worried about at the start of the year. He's five for six on the season right now, folks. Um, and if our defense picks up and our offense can find anything, it's exactly the kind of thing we would need in a close game and exactly the kind of game this game would have been if we would have gotten any offensive support. So uh, some pirate booty for Charlie. I'm, I'm laughing to myself about the moment in the game where ABC sent their sideline reporter to figure out what was wrong <laughs> with Charlie Kubander, and she was like, yeah, he's he's right here on the bench. He's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give a uh, I'll give oops. a little shout out to the the punt return team. We actually returned some punts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was know, putting, that one putting both JJ Jefferson and Riley Lee's back there. Uh, kind of two returners that, that kind of opened things up. I mean, Jefferson had a, a couple nice punt returns. Lee's returned three of them. Um, was it was it Sandup who had the. Uh... I don't know. I mean, I'm not. My intent's not to call someone out, but like, there was the one play where we had the block in the back. And oh, if, right. And and it was not a necessary block in the back, and that's not even statistically reflected in those returns. And that was a monster return. Um, so I totally agree. Yeah, a monster return that was followed up by the the fumble score the fumble for score. Wisconsin. <sighs> that was, yep. a, that was, 
a turning point in the game. And that's so the the one other one I'll mention, and I, I do think this guy deserves a little little love on the offense, and that's Drake Anderson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who you know only sixty eight yards um, on sixteen carries, averaged better than four. I think he's a better fit for what we're trying to do with this offense, and we just spent you know twenty five minutes lambasting what we're trying to do with this offense, but. but I- the spread I, concepts are legit and and fit the skill sets. We just I, aren't calling the right place. <laughs> I don't know, Scuzz. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. Oh, really? I, I don't know that we've had any evidence to this point this season that a small, fast running back and a spread concept can have success against Nebraska. I just don't know that there's been any kind of recent evidence that uh, that little fast running backs can do damage against the Huskers. <laughs> Oh boy! Um, All right. Let, well, let, anyway, let, let, wait, let's I'm sorry. Whoa, uh, whoa! J.K. Dobbins just ran right past me while I was saying that he's still running for yards against Nebraska. Well, he's he's quite a bit bigger than Drake Anderson, but still, I like the point being if if you know if we're if we're throwing eight to twelve yard passes instead of one to three yard passes and forcing you know linebackers and safeties to to think about that at times. Um, as opposed to just like everybody attack, uh, Drake Drake becomes a real a real weapon, and I just I thought I thought he was good. I'll also say like we talked a bit about, um, I certainly talked a lot about it on Twitter, and we've talked about it a bit here. But I think Aiden Smith deserves some credit for coming in in a really tough situation and and, and dealing, playing playing pretty well and very well. Maybe you know we don't have an injury report on Hunter, but it very well maybe Aiden starting this game, um, and we'll we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen, but again, it's that should not be freaking people out. Um, Aiden got better as this game went on, and that, I mean you're right. Like a little pirate booty to him. Um, he finished eight of twenty, but factor into that the start of his time when like I, we were looking at him as like he was just missing receivers by like five feet. The guy was just wired and scared and thrown into the fire, and then he got a lot better and let a touchdown drive. So let's let's think of happier thoughts and turn our attention uh, to the children of the corn. I think we need to give the people what they want here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I hope all of you got a chance to watch that Ohio State Nebraska game because <laughs> I need I needed that pick me up Saturday night, and it it was very it was like a warm salve on my on my soul. And, and for those what, of you who, what's, didn't, what's, who didn't watch it. Um, Ohio State mopped the floor with no, they could have won this game a hundred to nothing if they oh, wanted to. Absolutely, and it was it was somewhat painful inside to like actually be appreciating what Ohio State was doing, um, just because they are so loathsome. But Nebraska to me is even more, um, like and just to see them just get absolutely shellacked like that, uh, you, you gotta wonder. You know, is, is this team, you know, with all, with, with all of their expectations, uh, coming into the season, you know, yeah, they're three and two, but they could very easily be one and four. Very easily. N- Nebraska, Nebraska crumbling under their expectations or, um, just people are now understanding that how, what how Nebraska is astro- astronomically out of, uh, reality those expectations were. So, so here's the thing. Like, there's no way ever in any situation Nebraska was going to win that game. I mean, they're not a particularly good football team, and Ohio State's probably the second best football team in the country right now after Alabama. I mean, Ohio State might win the national championship. That's absolutely in play. And, but the thing is, 
On the offensive side of the ball, we have to game plan for best case scenario, Nebraska, which is Adrian Martinez confident, spreading the ball out and running like crazy and and making things happen with his legs and good decision making. That's what you have to game plan for. And that guy absolutely exists, and he showed up a fair amount down the stretch for Nebraska last season. He's shown up maybe once this season. The rest of the time, he's just been a turnover factory. And they, like, Nebraska won't even be close against the teams, most of the teams on their schedule, if he's turning the ball over three times. They need to score minimum half of their possessions in most games. And... Against, like, they never even had a chance. If he's throwing interceptions against Ohio State, because that's what you have to game plan for. You have to game plan for the best possible scenario. We talked about in the summer previews. We talked about they may only have a couple impact players, but one of them's Martinez, and he can be fantastic. On defense, it is a completely different story. I could not, in any possible way, have hammered home the suckitude of Nebraska's defense any harder than I did in our summer preview. And that is the exact defense they are rolling out this season. Scuzz summed it up so well when he talked about the Ohio State preview. And I say that in full knowledge of the fact that Ohio State is exceeding even our most optimistic expectations for how they would be. But it's important that you guys know That Ohio State has five-star talent at wide receiver. They have five-star talent at running back. They have five-star talent with a bullet at quarterback. They do not have five-star talent at the offensive line. Scuzz outlined the fact that, especially for Ohio State, this is not a particularly ballyhooed group of offensive linemen across the line. They are decent, but they are not a dominating group of players, and they're all pretty green. And then you and, watch- and and if you look at their like advanced metrics and stuff, like they were worse than Indiana last year, right? And then you watch the absolute dominance at the line of scrimmage, the holes J.K. Dobbins was running through. You could have driven a truck through. Just it's Nebraska runs that three four, but there are three down linemen and like a, one linebacker close, just getting picked up and moved out of the way. It is, they just don't have it. You know how Nebraska's going to game plan for us? The same way UNLV did. Flood the box and go man coverage tight. Because that's what they have to do. You're not going to see any kind of base garbage like Michigan State and Wisconsin could throw out because they're really talented and they know what we're going to do on offense. There's a good chance like Nebraska's going to know too. But knowing is not enough. Like, Nebraska can't play base against us because, and remember this, our offensive line is good at run blocking, and we'll move those guys out of the way. And one yard runs, a lot of the time, not if we keep running on first down every single flip and play of the game, but a lot more of the time are going to turn into four-yard carries, five-yard carries. Nebraska just sucks on defense. So it's not going to be the same kind of thing. And for all of our moaning and apoplexy about the Mick McCall era and what needs to be done and what isn't going to be done, etc., that doesn't change the fact that Nebraska's crap on defense and we're going to be able to do things against them we couldn't do against Stanford and we couldn't do against Wisconsin and we couldn't do against Michigan State. But we could do against UNLV. 
Yeah, yes. I, I mean, and and like Nebraska definitely has more talent than UNLV, but this this game is going to look like that game uh, in terms of the strategy and the approach. And, and like, he, I mean, Adrian Martinez looked absolutely horrific against Ohio State. Um, and now, to be clear, he's been a lot, lot better in the other four games, um, averaging closer to like 10 yards per attempt. He was at 2.8. Versus versus Ohio State, my goodness, horrific. Um, but our defense outside of Ohio State's defense, easily the best one that they've seen. Illinois, NIU, Colorado, sorry, Sammy, and no, and, uh, and University of Southern Alabama. Like our defense is legit, and they're back, and they're flaming angry uh, coming out of that that Wisconsin game. And if they can play disciplined football, the, one of the big one of the big issues with Nebraska coming into this year. They lost, um, I forget him, I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, uh, Stanley. Um, Stanley Morgan. Thank you, yes. They lost Stanley Morgan, who was their big play down downfield receiver last year. They lost him. Nobody has emerged in that role. They have a whole bunch of fast running back type dudes. Mark, Maurice Washington, Wandell Robinson. They got some transfer from Cal that was like, I forget the Northwestern message board uh, poster who got into it with Nebraska and was like, oh, yeah, I live in, in Northern California. I've been to, went to some Cal games last year. Yeah, that guy might might play for, for most Big Ten teams. He was, you know, he was number three out here. He's kind of okay. Um, they just don't have the receivers to force defenses to stretch out, and they can only really play one running back at a time. The, the what they have going for them is the read option with Martinez and that he can run around and keep plays going. And that's been a bugaboo for Northwestern in the past. We're going to give up points to this team. If our offense plays like they did last week, we will absolutely lose to, lose to Nebraska and it will be bad and it will be painful. But if we can just be like 25% smarter, 25% less dumb, even um, this, this game is right there for the taking. I'll add to, and just just to a split-second return to the Wisconsin game, Hankowitz, who, of course, his unit had an awesome game overall, the Hankowitz special almost produced another pick. Ernest Brown out in the flats, and Cone fed it to him. Um, and Hankowitz, that is his thing. He is so good at knowing when to run that play. And, you know, most of the time you're sending a defensive end out into the flats, and these are not guys that are used to catching passes, but the, it's, he, he seems to have this sixth sense about when to run it. And Martinez has thrown five picks to seven TDs this year, and he has put it on the ground a bunch of times. He fumbles. He's, it's a, he's a guy for—he tries to force things. He puts the ball out there. He runs— you know, of course, the guy's all heart. He has to. He's the team. But he's out there running, trying to make plays. He can put it on the deck, and he can throw picks. And it's the kind of thing where you can see a situation where he's rolling around, he's keeping the play alive, and Ernest Brown or Gastown has floated out into the flat, and Martinez feeds it right to him. Those kind of things have been killing Nebraska this year. Like, we're not asking for something that hasn't occurred. Again, you prepare for the best-case scenario, for sure. And the best-case scenario is kind of like what we saw with UNLV. It is multiple speed guys succeeding through misdirection. But 
our defense has improved even since that game. And again, for all of the belly aching about the offensive side of the ball, expect this to be the game where the offensive line's ability to move people and a guy like Gunnar Vogel, who is a massive human being, who because of his, I think, failures in the pat in pass pro this year, isn't given enough credit for his effectiveness as a run blocker. And then you've got Slater and you've got Thomas. You know how those guys run block. That is going to come to bear in this game. The run game is going to show up at a level that it hasn't. And to Scuzz's point earlier, Drake succeeds in this type of situation. It's exactly what we talked about after the UNLV game. There will be space for him to move in this game, and I think he's going to have a good game. You guys saw what the line is right now, right? Oh, what is it? Nebraska by seven? That'd be my guess. Discuss? I think it. I know it opened at nine and came down to seven, right? It's it's at eight right now as we record this on oh. Monday night. So, I mean, that's. That's on our offense. That's all I've got to say about that. I mean, I that's offense has got to get it together, and that starts with Mick McCall. And you know, like play like a guy who thinks he might get fired, please. Like let's let's have that illusion of lack of job security. Um, and, but I mean, with that said, like like Nebraska is a whisker away from being zero and four. They barely beat South Alabama, and they barely beat Illinois. And they, they did blow the, out Northern Illinois, so you know that they. Oh, that's true. So that's right. They, I forgot that they have that extra game under their belt. But they, they're a whisker away from having four losses. And they, right now, they're we have huge issues. But right now, they're a team that can't play defense and turns the ball over a lot. So um, if you're looking for a team for us to get back on the right track, it's this team. Should we uh, quickly whip around the conference, uh, just kind of recapping a little bit of last week's action? Um, last last Friday, we had uh, Penn State 59, Maryland 0. I guess we can pump, pump the brakes on our effusive praise of Maryland. So I, um, I, I, I looked at that and I thought, man, it's a Friday night game maryland's canceled classes like everybody's fired up and wow they were way too fired up because the moment things went south like the wheels came off it is it's pretty hysterical in retrospect that maryland canceled classes and then lost 59 <laughs> you kind of feel bad for them um holy moly like yeah they they were looking incredible two weeks ago or two games ago and now they're you know two and two and you don't know who the real maryland is yeah and it's like you're kind of i mean penn state had that one rough outing against Pitt. they've piled up points otherwise their defense is exactly where we thought it was going to be and their offense is definitely better they've got as good of a chance uh you know as good of a case of being the second best team in the big 10 of anybody right now i don't think it's wisconsin I think it could be Iowa, but if you make me guess, I, I would say Penn State right now. Um, speaking of Iowa, they beat Middle Tennessee forty-eight to three. Whoop de do. They play Michigan this week. It'll be really interesting. Absolutely, yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Um, Michigan beat Rutgers fifty-two to zero. Immediately, <laughs> to re, cut, to re, 
to retain their ranking. <laughs> uh, yeah. H- hashtag cure for what ails you. Yeah. The most ridiculous thing about this game is, one, that you Rutgers is the kind of team you can beat 52 nothing, and it tells us absolutely nothing about whether or not you've improved as a team. I still think Michigan has massive problems, and I think in their next four games, they're staring at three very likely losses if they don't seriously improve. Um, but Rutgers, I mean, the most hilarious thing is they fired Chris Ash the day after. Before the pod, Sammy and I were looking at Rutgers' first four games, and I was kind of like, you could kind of argue Rutgers has done a pretty good job here. Like, I, they, if you match this up with my expectations, they didn't score against Michigan. They didn't score against Iowa. They sort of played BC close, and they beat UMass. Whatever my rosiest expectations would have been, that's kind of what it would have been. Um, I don't it's know kinda, what... It's kind of like a, they've got a home game against Maryland. Maybe, like, see how they do? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. But, I, I mean, whatever. It is funny, and we did joke that, you know, Sammy and I were at the, the Big Ten media, the Big Ten media luncheon where Chris Ash said that he wouldn't be measuring success in wins and losses. But uh, apparently, apparently, that was not a universally held opinion within the Rutgers athletic department. I, I just think the most appropriate New Jersey person of all time is taking over as uh, interim head coach, Nunzio Campanile. Tell me that guy is not from New Jersey. Amazing. <sighs> Jabella. Yeah. Uh, Michigan State beat Indiana 40-31. to 31. However, this was really – this was a, a three-point game, and then um, uh, Michigan State recovered uh, a fumble on, uh, you know, a desperation lateral play at the end to score a TD. Yeah, and again, this was the – I think – the team that Scuzz outlined in the summer, that Indiana team finally kind of surfaced and showed you exactly the way that they can be dangerous and exactly why they're not going to be fun to face later in the season. So it was funny. I, I tuned into this game off and on a little bit on Saturday. And um, Michael Penix, who's Indiana's starting QB this year, is you know true dual threat guy. They were running a very similar approach to Northwestern against Michigan State and having a lot more success with it, i.e. A, a read option look. Now, that being said, they did not get a lot of yards on the ground, but they they got 286 through the through the air. They threw more than – they threw 42 times and they rushed 28. Huh. Interesting. Just leave it there. Um, but it was a very, very similar approach. And the reality is, like, I'm I'm – terrified of this Indiana team because they have receivers. They can throw down field. Like when we play them on November 2nd, I am, Oh boy. I hope we've come a long way between now and then, um, or we're going to be nursing some wounds after that game. And then finally, um, Minnesota beat Purdue 38 to 31. Um, Purdue losing Elijah Sindelar and Rondell Moore on the exact same play. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing a report that Sindelar might be done for the year. Uh, if that's the case, Purdue's just done. I mean, absolutely horrific. I feel so bad for them. I mean, it's just what, whatever the worst, this is the absolute worst case scenario for them. And yeah, this will be one of the worst teams in the Big Ten now. Um, it's horrible to say, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Remember that number 14 ranked pass defense? Tanner Morgan threw for 396 yards against this team. 
Um, Tanner Morgan missed one pass. He was 21 to 22. So here's the, like Tanner Morgan was unconscious on Saturday. Um, he hit a pass to Rashad Bateman on a, on, on a slant where he dropped it in between the linebacker and safety who were not, not double covering um, Bateman per se, but were bracketing him to like prevent this exact throw. And he absolutely just dropped it perfectly. And Bateman blazed past those guys. Bateman had, Bateman had 177 yards on six catches for two TDs. Uh, teams have been doubling Tyler Johnson and Bateman is taking advantage. He's been pretty good in a whole bunch of different games. Um, interestingly, so I like, I still believe everything I said about this Minnesota team that when they play real defenses, they're in trouble. Um, the one quibble I have with, with your comment that Purdue is toast is that Jack Plummer actually looked okay in this game. Not great. I was, when, when those guys went down, like you knew they were toast, especially like Rondell Moore is so important to them. But interestingly, David Bell, eight receptions for 114 yards. Um, this is the first, like, this is kind of a breakout game for him. He's a Rondell Moore clone. Um, depending what the Moore situation is, if he's able to come back in another couple weeks, like they might still be okay. I think, that's, I think plumbers that, a drop off, but that's, I, the, I don't, I don't think that this team's going to like go one in one in 11 or anything. Well, that's the tricky thing though. Is like we talked about in the summer, the margins for Purdue, they're the only other team other than Rutgers that could theoretically lose to every team on their schedule. They just don't have a lot of gimmies and their defense is so bad. So it's like, I hope so. I hope they can continue to put up points, but man, I'll say that on the flip side too, the stars could not be aligning anymore for what I firmly believe is a mediocre Minnesota Golden Gophers yeah, football. Truly, I mean, you're talking about a team that they have won games by seven, three, three, and seven to South Dakota State, Fresno State, Georgia Southern, and Purdue. But not only are they four and zero. Their next four games are Illinois, Nebraska, Rutgers, and a suddenly <laughs> awful-looking Maryland team. Like, this team could be 8-0 oh. and and hosting Penn State. It's ridiculous. I mean, like, get ready for Minnesota to be ranked because it's very possible that that's going to be happening. One, I think in every one of those games, they um, they have had sizable leads that have maybe not South Dakota State because that was pretty close back and forth in Fresno as well. But the other two games, like they had a sizable lead that they've they've blown down the stretch. So whether it's um, I don't know if it's if it's like a play calling turtle shell situation or if it is um, just a, a lack of, of fortitude on defense. I think it's probably the latter. Um they're they're certainly susceptible, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think like like the prognosticators that were like, "Ooh, Minnesota, dark horse, Big Ten West pick." I mean, I still call shenanigans on that for a lot of different reasons, but um, there will like they might be hosting a a top fifteen Penn State team eight uh, no the second weekend in November. Like that's that's very plausible coming off a bye and like who who knows what might happen. Guys, I I think we need to take a page out of the Solid Verbals book and start to figure out how we're going to talk to our kids about an undefeated Minnesota. <laughs> I, I I ain't worried about that because they go they go to Iowa to Northwestern and then play Wisconsin three weeks after that the three yeah. weeks following that Penn State game. Well, I, I think I just read, too, that their entire receiver core is sitting out the rest of the season to protect their draft status. So, I mean, they are going one know. and two overall, like, in, in the next year's draft, so. Oh, God. 
Um, let's uh, talk about this weekend in the Big Ten. Uh, you've got Wisconsin taking on Kent State. Wisconsin a 37-point favorite. Cool, whatever. That's fine. Uh, Purdue at Penn State. Penn State a 27-and-a-half-point favorite. Whoa, Nelly! Oh, Whoa, Nelly! No matter what's going on with David Bell and Jake Plummer, this is this is a bad this is a bad bad news bears for uh, that, for Purdue. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Penn State can top what they did to Maryland, but they're going to give her a run. Uh, probably the game of the morning, easily the game of the morning. Um, Maryland Rutgers, Iowa, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he. Michigan a five point favorite, and I don't buy that. I don't buy oh, that at all. Oh my god, hell no! Michigan's got to prove to me that they are in Iowa's class right now. And I know, Scott. Like I talked in the summer about how I was giving Michigan's defense all the credit in the world based on the culture that was there and the fact that two years earlier they had to turn over most of the defense and absolutely reloaded. I'm still waiting for the evidence that they have reloaded this time and. That tight win against Army and this blowout over Rutgers ain't doing it for me. Um, I need to see Michigan actually move the ball. Like, Iowa's defense is playing much better than Michigan's defense right now. I, I don't subscribe to anything of what went on in that Rutgers game. I don't know that Michigan can move the ball against this Iowa team. And they need to prove me otherwise. And if they can't move the ball, Iowa will do enough against this Michigan team to win. So I I don't see it. Michigan's defense is susceptible to the run. Michigan doesn't have much of a running game to speak of. Um, And Iowa's defensive line is going to terrorize Shea Patterson. Yeah. This, yeah. Iowa's better right now. I like, they're much better until, I'm proven otherwise by Michigan. I have not seen it. This is number 14 at number 19, and number 19 is a five-point favorite. Yep. It's pretty yeah. surprising. If this were an that, NFL game, it would be like a, that's, like a that's Michigan laundry. by one and a half. That's laundry love. Same reason Michigan's 19 to begin with. Yep. If I were a gambling man, I'd probably uh, bet the mortgage on Iowa here. Mm-hmm. Um, don't bet the mortgage on anything, people. No, don't. No, that that's a big if. I am not, in fact, a gambling man. Uh, Maryland at Rutgers. I mean, uh, Maryland. Josh just... Josh Jackson has looked really good, except for last week. I think he will look really good again, and this is going to be a total blowout. We're going to be talking about Maryland in the seventies again. R- Rutgers is the cure for what ails you. Absolutely. Um, Illinois at Minnesota. I'll be curious to see how many points Illinois scores. They've been putting up points. They are not going to stop Minnesota often defensively. Like Minnesota right now, give credit. Tanner Morgan, you know, he needs a good defense to step up and remind him that this is Minnesota's offense we're stopping talking about, but that ain't Illinois' defense. Um, I expect Minnesota to move the ball and put up points here. I'll be curious, though. You know, just continuing to try to get a gauge on what Minnesota's got defensively right now, exactly what Illinois can do. The interesting thing about Illinois is they're such a rush-heavy team. And, like, that was – that's Purdue cannot do that. They're not a rush-heavy team. Um, Georgia Southern did okay and not great. Um, Fresno State, I think, had some more luck against Minnesota. This will be the first, like, really good running team that Minnesota's faced. I'll be curious how they hold up. 
And then uh, the night game, ABC, you've got Michigan State at Ohio State. Such a good game. Ohio State, this is this game really will be the game that I think for a lot of people will define whether or not they are national title material or not. Michigan State is light years better than every defense Ohio State has played. And if Ohio State comes out and puts up 40 in this game, that's it. You know, game over. Like, just pencil them in for Alabama at the end of the year. Here's the thing. Michigan State ain't seen a quarterback like this. They sure as shit ain't seen receivers like this. And I think this Ohio State team is so locked in, so better coached and more disciplined than they ever were during the Urban Meyer era or, frankly, during the Jim Trestle era. era. Especially and in the latter half of the Trestle era. What, whatever Ryan Day is doing, my God, um, if he can sustain it, that remains to be a giant question, but it's it's fun. You can see it in um, in Fields's eyes. He is so locked in, and the the way that first half progressed against against Nebraska, like I think they got the ball back with what fifty nine seconds left, and they went for it. They're calling timeouts. They're spiking the ball. They're throwing it sixty yards downfield. They were making a statement last weekend, and. There was no, there was no hesitation. There was no chest thumping. There was no, like, shit talking. Like, this team is in it for the playoff and the national championship. That is, that is what they have their eyes on, and they are laser focused right now. And it is really impressive. Their penalties per game rate is almost is is not quite, but get, getting close to half of what it was during the majority of the Urban Meyer era. Like I. I think this Ohio State team is is on another level that we haven't seen in a long, long time. And I think the receivers and fields combined, Michigan State can't cover them. I I don't think they can defend that. They don't get to the quarterback well enough. Fields is so good escaping pressure. I think they thrash them. Well, I mean, they are a a 20-and-a-half point favorite. I mean, I'm not going to bet on on those points, but, um, but I think they thrash them. Uh, looking around the country, there's, there's some nice matchups this week. Uh, you got Auburn, Florida. Um, weirdly, Auburn is seven, Florida is 10. I don't see that from either team, but game days going to Gainesville for the first time since 2012. Bo knows. I, I think Auburn is going to put it on Florida in that game. I, I think, I don't know. I've, I view Florida as a pretender, and I believe Auburn is the seventh member of the seven teams that have a shot at, at the national title slash the playoff. Um, I don't think they're—I think there's a big jump between them and the other six, but I believe that they are part of that group, and I don't think Florida is, and I think Auburn's going to handle them. Um, UCF-Cincinnati could be interesting. I mean, UCF coming off uh, that loss at Pitt— um, has, has to go to Nippert Stadium. I don't suppose you're going to that, are you? I am going to that. Nice. It's Friday night. Uh, my dad's coming to town. We are going to be taking that game in. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, anyone who ever finds themselves in the Cincinnati area in the fall, a night game uh, at UC is a lot of fun. Students come out in force. This one should be pretty good. This has been a, I won't say a rivalry, but this, like, 
UCF is the team that hasn't lost, you know, except for this one game against Pitt two weeks ago, um, in essentially three seasons. So, uh, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. I think, you know, these, these two teams are, are right there along with, um, probably Boise and, and maybe a couple others for, uh, for the group of five, you know, tops in the group of five. Like none, none of these guys are competing for the national championship anymore. Um, they probably never were to begin with, but, uh, this is going to be a really fun game. Anything else kind of piquing your guys' interest? Notre Dame Bowling Green. I mean, sure. If if you if you want to go down that road, you absolutely if can. Te- if Tennessee loses by, f- like, how much does Tennessee need to lose by hosting Georgia for uh, for for Jeremy Pruitt to get fired? <sighs> or is that is that an untenable outcome? I don't know. I don't know. If, I, are you really going to turf Pruitt after a season and a half? I don't know. There's a lot of people out there. It's funny. Like Andy Staples wrote a, wrote an article a couple of weeks ago talking about how, like after after they got just mashed by by Florida, like Tennessee has got to go through the painful process of letting Pruitt rebuild the program and and see what happens, um, as opposed to you know going knee jerk and pulling the trigger and. Uh, firing another coach and starting over again. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about like Philip Fulmer wants to get back on the on the sideline. I'm sure he's looking at North Carolina and Mac Brown and thinking he's got all he's got what it takes to take Tennessee back to glory. But um, well, how, yeah, how about Mac, how about Mac Brown and the Tar Heels? Like, Whew. almost you know coming I, down to it against Clemson. I mean, yeah, I, I I love the the stones for Mac to go for two there. I'm. I don't. I don't understand what's happening because, like, like, like. So certainly he brings a lot of charisma, and I'm sure he brought a lot of money to that program. But, um, like, I don't like that program doesn't have good players, right? Like, what is what is happening here? Are we in an alternate alternate dimension? I think they probably got the the Clemson sleepwalk game, like that they've had for the past ever. I mean, Clemson always yeah, has that one game fair. that they sleepwalk through, and up until recently, they've lost that game. And, you know, but, well, but North Carolina's Clemson, been good all season. I guess it's it it makes a lot more sense if you look at Clemson as like the fifth or sixth best team in the country, um, and I think they might be about like the sixth best team in the country. Um, I think there are there are five teams right now that look like they would put a thumping on Clemson. Well, John, especially let, Trevor- let me ask, let me ask, who is your playoff right now? This is interesting because I, I mean, Clemson still gets to put, I, I think Clemson's going to make probably at least one team in the SEC mad at the end of the day. If you ask me who the best teams are, Alabama, Ohio State, oh, it's a coin toss between Georgia and LSU and then definitely Oklahoma. It's like Oklahoma, um, if the, the teams to me that look like world beaters right now are Alabama, um, Oklahoma and Ohio State and probably LSU comes in right behind that and then and then Georgia but um but none of those are Clemson. Clemson would be behind that five, those five teams for me. Um if one lost Michigan beats Ohio State, they might go to the playoff. Yeah, and monkeys I'm, might I'm, fly I'm, out of my butt. <laughs> I'm 100% aligned with you, John. My I'm I'm in exactly the same spot. <laughs> So LSU, I mean, they so they got Utah State this week. Then they're home against Florida. Uh, 
at Mississippi State, home against Auburn at Alabama. Just back to back, Auburn and Bama. That I mean, that that'll tell us a lot about LSU. Yeah, we'll find out what they've got. But I think you know, for right now, those are that's the that's the class of the country right now. And I think you know, I'm thoroughly expecting Cal to to beat Oregon this year. I think that the Pac-12 is on a mission to just have like no ranked teams. Cal's Cal's QB is uh, out for the foreseeable future, though. So. So that's that's why Oregon is favored by seventeen. If you hadn't seen that line, it's you, you look at it, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> There's seventeen and a half point favorites over a four and one Cal team. I'll say I'll say this too. Uh, I'm thoroughly expecting Stanford to get fed into the wood chipper against Washington this week. Oh, they're gonna get destroyed after after beating Oregon State by three. And if they had not won that game. They would have lost four in a row, about to head to five in a row. And, uh, yeah, I hate to go there, but well, I that mean, loss just to, looks to worse our, and worse. To our credit, we did identify that Stanford is not as good as everyone made them out to be. Yep. Doesn't do us any any good at this point in the season, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> you know, we, 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 did, we did peg them. We just did not peg that we wouldn't be nearly as good as we thought. You know, it's it's interesting. I thought Costello was going to play it against Oregon State, and he did not. Um, really? Yeah, they. I, I thought he was he was going to be back for that game, and he did not play. So um, he he's obviously still still struggling. I hope that it's not uh, concussion related, but it's it's um, yeah. Right now, Davis Mills is is the the go to guy for that team, and that's a lot of the reason that they've been struggling. Well, not not to belabor this any any longer. I mean, we've uh, been here all night, but uh, do just want to mention uh, a couple things around around school. Um, field hockey continues to do well. What is it? Nine straight now? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to find it real quick. But yeah, they're they're playing out of their mind. It's it's amazing. Yeah, ten and two on the season. They're ranked seventh in the country, um, and they just they knocked just off, knocked off number, number, nine, number Michigan. nine, Michigan. Yep, uh, they went to they went to double OT and won in a shootout. Uh, number nine, Michigan. They beat number twenty four, Michigan State. They beat number twelve, Ohio State. Number fifteen, Wake Forest. Number thirteen, Boston College. Number they lost number three, Duke. Um, and they lost to uh, number four UConn. Those are the only two losses on their schedule right now. So, I mean, this team is like knocking on the door of the top five. They've got uh, a a pretty pretty. Well, I guess no. Maryland Maryland is not good at field hockey. No, right Ma- Maryland's lacrosse school. Yeah, I mean, they, yep. they don't have a they don't have a team left on the schedule who's ranked. No, so, so they're probably gonna gonna win out. They probably should win out, and then um, they're looking at what fifteen and two going into postseason play. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Usually, we have to wait until the spring for uh, playoff fun out on the lake, but this year, I think we're we're gonna get it in the fall. Oh no, I'm wrong. Uh, seventeen and two. Look at potential a potential seventeen and two regular season. That's awesome. Yeah, the other exciting exciting one is men's soccer, which is having a pretty good season. They're they're five three and one, but that includes um, a really huge three to one win over Maryland. I, I believe defending national. Yep, champions. that's right. Yeah, we, we mentioned that um, last week. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty huge. They they uh, 
they drew against Ohio State in their last game. Uh, got an OT win over UIC the week before. Massive, massive game. Uh, tomorrow night. Uh, tonight. Fuck, tonight. No, Tuesday, October 1st. Yeah, tomorrow night. Yes, it's mon- It's only Monday. Um, it's after midnight. And my computer tells me it's Tuesday, so that's why I got confused. But uh, number five, Indiana. Historical powerhouse in men's soccer, Indiana. And uh, the Cats are hosting them. If um, if you hear this and, and you're like, oh, wow, I should go to that game, do it. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully they're able to uh, – hopefully we see the men's soccer team notch a, a massive victory. Uh, it would be – absolutely huge for them to, to pull off that game uh, much like the field hockey team they don't have a ranked opponent the rest of the way after after indiana so they've got a really good shot at uh at a, at a strong season and, and going to post postseason play with a great record oh well with that it is it is nebraska week so i, I know my ire is at an all-time high um at least for this season i cannot wait to get in there you know we we played them tough every year um, and we tend to do pretty well at Memorial Stadium. So let's uh, let's hope that our offensive woes turn themselves around and uh, we can uh, lay it to the Cornhuskers because that would just be fun. Yeah, two, uh, <laughs> two teams um, looking for confidence yeah. going up against one another. So it'll be, yeah, I think, I think it goes without saying we all really, really want this game. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. Uh, head to our website, westlawpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Pirates, And you can always email the show, westlawpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. And look for us in the West Lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag, because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skazbo, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.